only source of true delight whom I unseen adore Unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more Oh that I might love thee more You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian the following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding dying. Scripture reading this morning is from the book of Romans, chapter 6, verses 11 through 18. You can follow along with me in the Pew Bible in front of you on page 943. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies. To make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are the slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become, sin, have become slaves of righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. We attended an excellent <clears throat> seminar this past few days. Uh, that took place at Christ Chapel. It was sponsored by uh, our own Jeremy Lellick's organization, uh, the Association of Biblical Counselors. And so everything I'm going to say is what they told me this week. No, <laughs> it was remarkable to see how much their emphasis, they, the, the emphasis was the gospel, and it was remarkable to see how in line with what we've been saying about Romans 6 and before everything they said was. And I wanted to begin this morning by uh, underscoring something that was said this week, that most people think of Christianity as just moralism. Sadly, not only people outside the church, but people within the church, that basically it boils down to you got to stop doing some things and start doing other things. And we all... Just think of it in the worst way of even being a performance, a constant performance for God who we can never please, but we hope we are pleasing and, and maybe it'll turn out all right in the end. It's um, sad how even in churches that believe the Bible, this is again and again the case. <clears throat> but actually, what happens in Christianity is, I think, given with Psalm 130 verse 4, there's this verse that says, there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. And the word feared there is a big word. It's not, obviously, forgiveness doesn't mean there's forgiveness with you so that we'd be scared of you, right? That couldn't be the meaning of that word fear. But the word means to be in awe, to be, become a real worshiper, to, to admire, to be amazed, to be in wonder, and to entrust yourself to, to, See no other person on the horizon except God. And, and for Him to then dominate your life, a, a new passion for Him, a new desire for Him, born out of this forgiveness. And so you could say that 
Christianity is the beginning of a new awe in a person's life. Beginning of a new relationship of admiration and worship of the living God through the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ. And so, as you've heard me say so many times, quote, that is, 1 John 4, 19, our duty, which is love, and that summarizes the whole Christian life, it's, it's our mission statement, love God and love others. It's born in our experience of His love and our understanding of His love. We talked about this just in our Sunday school class just now. Because He talks about in 1 John 4 that perfect love casts out fear. Fear involves uh, punishment. And if we have a fear of punishment, we've not been perfected in love. In other words, we haven't really come to grips with the accomplishment of God in Christ and, and we've not rested in that love of God for us in Christ. So we still have a fear of punishment. And so it's the understanding of that love that he has for me in Christ and trusting in it that is the root and beginning of my love for others. We love because he first loved us. So, so far from moralism is Christianity, that it's a new experience of the, or a beginning experience of the forgiveness of God that creates awe and understanding of His love that begins to transform my life from being centered on myself to being centered on God and others. It's transformative. And it's seeing a glory in Christ Jesus that I had never seen. Seeing a beauty of God break forth in Christ that transforms me. That's Christianity. And so our focus is upon Christ. Paul says, the love of Christ governs me now. It's, it's the whole culture of my life, the whole atmosphere of my life. It conditions the way I think and feel and what I do. This, this love, this governing awe of God and His forgiveness. This is the new context for my life. So the focus is on Christ, and He's the root of everything that I do. Now, along those lines, uh, a lady, Elise Gilpatrick, uh, said a very catching thing, I thought, fetching thing. She's a counselor and was uh, talking about counseling out of the grace of God. And she talked about how people have the little wristband, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And she said, we should have a different one. In fact, she said, maybe we should just tattoo it in our skin. And that is, what did Jesus do? Or we could say, what has Jesus done? WHJD, make your own acronym. But the point is that the focus of my life and the new freedom that I live in is what has Christ done? What has he accomplished for me? How do I live that out in my life? And so many of the issues in our lives revolve around that lack of understanding, the the lack of impact of Christ's person and work upon my life to bring to bear in my life. And that's why here in Romans chapter 6, Paul, when he's talking about how we change, 
He brings us to the work of Jesus Christ, which has already been accomplished. It's amazing as he's talking to us about our freedom in Christ, our new life in Christ. He has what we've already read here in verse 9. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he he lives, he lives to God. And you might look at that and say, well, yeah, okay, but we're talking about my problem with sin. Not talking about what happened 2,000 years ago with Christ. But this has everything to do with your and my problem with sin. Because of our union with Jesus Christ. So what Jesus did is the only way that I'll do what Jesus, uh, be like Jesus in the present. So it, it, it is really a great way to think about your life every day. To get up and maybe not say, what would Jesus do? But always, always reminding yourself, what, what, what would Jesus do? What did Jesus do for me? Who am I in Christ? What has he accomplished for me? What has he done that now I can live out in my present life? That is the focus of the New Testament everywhere you look. In the the letters of Paul particularly. Now, we have this phrase, verse 14. Sin will have no dominion over you. And I've gotten a lot of feedback this week and... So we're going to spend some extra time on this because people, we all have the question of, well, it says sin will not have dominion over me, but sin sure, it sure feels like sin has dominion over me. It sure doesn't feel like I'm free of sin. I don't see this taking place in my life. So I want to spend some time trying to get at what could be wrong, where's the disconnect, Or how can I view it more holistically to see that this is true and is taking place in my life? And next week I want to talk some about how do I remain motivated? How, what moves me? What, what strengthens me? What gives me energy to keep obeying steadfastly day after day, week after week? Because I feel so weary and I feel like giving up so much. So let's look at this phrase first. Sin will not have dominion over you. It could, you could read this literally. Sin will not lord over you, will not be your lord. We're familiar with the noun form of this word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? Kurios. Well, this is kuriai. It's the verb form of that. Um, and so, for instance, in Romans 14, you'll see the interplay of the, the noun talking about the Lord Jesus and then the verb. So it says here in Romans 14, you can see this just a few pages over. And it's good to have your Bible open. It's good to have the pew Bible open looking at these, these passages. On page 949, none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. Kurios. If we die, we die to the Lord. Kurios. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Kurios. And here's the verb 
For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and the living. So you see the interrelationship. He is the Lord, and he died to be Lord, to exercise lordship. We see it's that use of that word, Lord, and, and lordship, and exercise lordship, that surrounds this here. Since we live to Him and die to Him and belong to Him, He is our Lord in everything. We only have one Lord, right? No other Lord. And that's why Paul says here, sin will not be your Lord. That's good news. That's a, that's a very encouraging, that, that's a rejoicing, celebrating statement that is true about you. That is not your Lord anymore. And it will not be your Lord because Jesus is Lord and Jesus is your Lord. And we live to him and die to him. We belong to him. And he died for this purpose that he might be your Lord, that he would exercise that lordship in your life. And therefore, sin will not exercise its lordship in your life anymore. Cranfield writes, this sentence can be interpreted as a promise then that sin will no more be their Lord because another Lord has taken possession of them, namely Christ. Now, in the verse that I read a few minutes ago, verse 9, this same word for Lord is used. Because it says, Christ died, we know that Christ died being raised from the dead and will never die again. Death no longer has lordship over him. Death no longer has lordship over him. So, in one place he says, death, will, death no longer has lordship over Christ. Here in verse 14, sin will no longer have lordship over you. But they're closer than you might think. Because sin and death are always working partners. Okay? They're a team, always working in tandem. Death is sin's wingman. Wherever sin is, death is. Just listen to these passages. Romans 5.12. You can see them right before you. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. Wherever sin is, death is. Wherever death is, it means sin's there. They're always together. In verse 20, sin reigned in death. A little later in chapter, we read this in verse 16 of chapter 6. Sin which leads to death. 6.23, the wages of sin is death. 7.13, it was sin producing death in me. Or he can say in chapter 8 verse 2, the law of sin and death. A principle, sin and death working together. Or 1 Corinthians 15.56, the sting of death is sin. So seen in that light... It means that sin and death no longer have dominion over Christ. Therefore, sin and death will not have dominion over you. That's the glorious good news. That's the proclamation. That's what Jesus did. Okay, That's what Jesus has done. That he put sin to death. He has left that association with sin and death. And if you believe that Christ was so associated with sin that he took 
our punishment, then believe I'm so associated with Christ that I get His life. Okay? The union works both ways. Christ has left that association. He has left sin's condemning power that climaxes in death. And so, as surely as He was united to us so that He suffered and died because of that union, we are so united to Him that we are released from the dominion of sin and death because of that union. We can't be under the dominion of sin and death because Christ is not under the dominion of sin and death. We are with Him, joined to Him. His life is our life. And so, His resurrection has become our present resurrection to a new life lived to His glory. And it has as its final culmination our own bodily resurrection. But the good news is that final resurrection life has already taken root and is already bearing fruit in my life now. That resurrection life has already taken root and it's already bearing fruit right now in my life. You get a feel for that sense of the future into the present because he uses the future tense. Sin will not have dominion over you. And some think that this means only that in the final day sin will not have dominion over you. Well, it certainly includes that. It does mean that in the end we will be completely free from sin's lordship and the most absolute sense will be done with sin. But the future has broken into the present. And because we already have a share in this transition from old creation to new creation, we're already participating in that freedom that we will finally have to the full. And it's a, and you see, when you face your day and you rehearse these things, what has Jesus done? Then you, you see yourself in that light. I'm living out this resurrected life that will finally culminate in my complete removal from sin. But now that resurrection life has taken root in me. Now it's bearing fruit in my life. Probably many days we don't think that way. (laughs) And if you're thinking, what would Jesus do without thinking what Jesus has done, you won't do anything for Jesus, (laughs) truly, or very little. So, what I want you and I to think about here, as we're thinking of the future shining into the the, the present, don't draw a thick line between the future and the present. The, The future has begun now, so it's not a shut door, it's not a closed window, that new resurrection life. The resurrection life spills into our lives now. We're already participating in that freedom. It's The river of resurrection is not dammed up, but it's cascading into our lives and into our relationships, into our ministries, into our community as the body of Christ. And so, as we said before, you've already caught up into the Gulf Stream of resurrection life. And brothers and sisters, you must repeat that and repeat that and repeat that to yourself. And believe it and enrich your life with it. Jeremy Burroughs, a Puritan, says, From Christ, as from a fountain, sanctification, that is, a growing holiness, a growing likeness to Christ, flows into the souls of the saints. 
Their sanctification comes not so much from their struggling and endeavors and vows and resolutions as it comes flowing to them from their union with Him. Now, are there vows and resolutions? Are there struggles and endeavors? Yes. But that's not the source of the change that happens, that occurs. Thelica puts it this way, We saints must not close our mouths to this fountain of sanctification, but continue to drink from it. And let me just say as as an application, that's why you and I don't have the freedom of making excuses. See, this is wonderful news of freedom, but it also means I can't have a careless, half-hearted obedience, comforting myself in, well, at least I'll be changed in the end. And I think many times we do. Gosh, I'm not making any prize, but at least he's going to change me in the end. And we we practically have given up on change, thinking it's okay because finally, in the end, I will change. Whatever, Jesus will complete the process. And it's true, he will. But to have that excuse... Not to throw myself into sanctification because I, I have, and I love what our, uh, the hymn that we sang says, in his strength we dare to battle. I love that. I spoke a lot this week about courage. The courage to fight, the courage to enter into development of character that's not been there, the courage to enter into ridding myself of sin. It's the courage based on who I am in Christ and and the resurrection life that is mine in Christ. Daring, daring against all odds, humanly speaking, to accomplish change in my life. I think, as we'll get to it, that can many times be how Romans 7 is misused. If you're not familiar with it, Romans 7 talks a lot about what I want to do, I don't do. And what I don't want to do, I do. And I just speak by experience, and I've heard it a lot of times, just a way to kind of commiserate with each other. That's, That's all you can do. That's just going to be your life. That's the stamp of your whole life. You're going to keep trying to do things, but you won't be able to do them. And everything you don't want to do, you'll keep. That's just, that's just the Christian life. That's the, Paul did it right there. I don't think that's why John Romans 7 is written for us, by the way. But I think that we've got to be careful not to think that this future resurrection life has nothing to do with now. It must give us this glorious hope Strength, courage, daring to enter in to the warfare with, with sin. Back, uh, if you'll back up to Romans one twenty, just want to underscore something here that, that is encouraging to me. When it says here, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. The word, things that have been made, is just one word, poiema. We might say his works, okay, in, in the works or the, uh, the, made, the made things, okay? And it's in the context of creation, obviously. Ever since creation, the things that have been made, the poiema. Well, what is wonderful to hear 
Is it in the context of Ephesians 2 where he says, You who were dead have been made alive with Christ. You've been raised with Him and seated with Him in the heavenlies. In that context of making us alive, the resurrection affecting us and raising us up with Christ, he says, You are God's poema. You are God's workmanship. You are the thing He has made. Here's the creation and the things God has made. Here's His new creation. He even says, you're His poema, created for good works. Isn't that glorious? Who you are, what you are. And He uses a creation word. These are the things God made in creation by His almighty power. And we see His glory in it. You are His poema. You are His workmanship. You're what he is making. So the new creation is now. Resurrection is now. And it will not end until the process is perfectly completed. I'm sure of this, Paul says in Philippians 1, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. But he has begun that good work in you. You're poema. And you need to, in the morning, you know, read Ephesians 2.10. I'm his poema. I'm partaking of resurrection life now. And it will have its final glorious consummation. As Jude says, now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. That's your future. You presented before God blameless and have exhilarated joy in his presence. His holy presence. Not trembling, well, trembling in the sense that you're trembling and worshiping, but not this, you know, let me out of here. Great joy, because you have been made like him. But the question arises, doesn't it, in our lives, how do I make sense of this? Yeah, Okay, I hear you. I'm partaking of the resurrection life. Sin will not have dominion over me. Sin and death don't have dominion over Christ. I'm united to Him. Now it won't have dominion over me. It can't. And yet, we struggle so much. And so here's some questions. I continue to struggle with and against a sin for years. How does that fit in with sin shall not have dominion over you? Or I've failed repeatedly in a particular sin. How does that fit? If not failing completely, I still feel the temptation after so many years. How does that fit that sin will not have dominion? And then how do I connect the dots? How does my newness in Christ take hold of me? How does it affect what I do and say and think? And then the last one, which we'll talk about next week. How do I stay motivated? How do I have an energy for obedience and a desire and a passion for it. Well, we'll at least get started. Um, I want you to first consider Christ's general lordship and the incongruity that you see around you in the whole world in Christ's lordship. Because sometimes you look in your own life and say, I don't know if his lordship's exercising itself in my life. But many times it doesn't look like it. But consider that Jesus is Lord over all things. It doesn't really look that way sometimes, does it? I mean, this world is just mad. It's con- the confusion, the 
horrible things that go on left and right. That's one of the reasons the Jews couldn't believe that Jesus is Messiah because they expected when Messiah came, the nations would be put under His absolute rule right then and there. There'd be no more continuation as it had been up to that point. So if he did take his throne, there'd be immediate subjection of the nations to his rule. So when uh, you say to other people, Jesus reigns, you can imagine some of them say, oh, really? He does. Like when so-and-so happened, that's his reign? Now, that may shake you a little bit, but I think many of you can say with absolute faith, oh, yes, he does. Absolutely. It's all a part of his work and his plan because he's sovereignly using every single thing out there to accomplish what he's going to accomplish. And we read in 1 Corinthians 15, finally will come the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. He must reign until he's put all of his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So we believe his reign, though we can't, you know, see, we're seeing the under threads, as they say, of the tapestry, and it looks messy, and we can't make it out. We believe he's reigning, and in the end, he will put every enemy under his feet. Well, I encourage you to believe that about your life. And it's a matter of believing in his lordship over your life. So many of us have no trouble believing about that, but it's so hard to. Think about His Lordship in our life. And I want you to take comfort in His reign in your life that He is always working in your life. He never turns away from you. He never neglects you. And every circumstance and every event, even your failures, become tools in His hand to draw you into greater dependence and greater worship and greater love. Nothing falls outside of His work. And so as you don't deny his lordship in the world, don't deny his specific lordship in your life. And it can give you a new rest to know he has me. You know, He has taken my case. Okay, It's a great comfort to know a brilliant doctor who always succeeds in this particular eye problem has agreed to take your case. And you know that you're going to have sight. Because this guy is the best and he never fails. Jesus, if you trust yourself to him, he's taken your case. You're under the powerful protection of Christ. He holds you and will not let you go. So take comfort in the general lordship of Christ and believe there's a specific lordship in my life. And part of that means that in a progressive way, Not an absolute way, but in a progressive way, sin will not have dominion. Brings us to point two. It doesn't say sin will go away. It doesn't say sin, you will not struggle. It doesn't say that the conflict will go away. It means the dominion will go away. So that there can and will be progress in your life. Now, that's the encouragement that we need. I will make progress by God's grace. That's why, again, he mentions the word mortal bodies in verse 12, okay? Reminding us that there are limits. We are still in this world. We're still engaged with the enemy. And we will one day die. 
uh, physically unless Christ comes. And, of course, we'll be raised again from the dead. But we're in a weak situation, humanly speaking. We are at war, and the war is fierce. It is serious. And though sin may uh, fail me at times, may break me at times, it doesn't have my heart, it doesn't have my life, it doesn't have my destiny. I belong to Jesus, but I am at war. And so sometimes I think we just, because we struggle, we think this can't be true. I can't struggle this way, this hard, this long with sin. It just, it, something must, must be wrong. But part of it is believing in the Lordship of Christ that is taking, has taken hold of my life and will progressively show itself in my life. Sin will not have dominion over me. And remember that struggle with sin can produce increasing humility in your life, which is one of the most vital things for us. One of the things that stands in the way of our being most uh, full of love for others is our, we're so full of ourselves. We're so full of our strength and our capacity. And again and again, God will push you beyond what you're able to do and experience the brick wall limitation of your ability. Will show your character. And it's so hard, but it's the beginning for, for every single person, it's how humility grows in my life. It's how dependence grows. It's how a growing worship and honoring Him that you have all the resources that I don't have. You are glorious and perfect no matter how imperfect I am. And you begin to take a joy in who He is and not a joy in how good you're doing. And it depends on how well you've performed that day. And when you experience His forgiveness, this gives you more and more grace to bear with the sins of others and to forgive others as God has forgiven you. So many times sin can be seeming to win a battle, but it's losing major ground always in God's hands for His people who are trusting Him. Christ will not fail to work in us that which is pleasing in His sight. And I think for many of us, we don't get to the point many times of crying out with the same helplessness of the blind man, Son of David, have mercy on me, rescue me, deliver me. And that's not just a beginning prayer. We, we come up against things over and over in our lives where we fail so miserably. We see the limits of how much I am not able to love my wife or my husband or my children. Or to resist this, resist anger or jealousy or lust. We come to the end of ourselves and we should be praying this every day. Lord, today, today, be my Savior. Rescue me. Deliver me. I look to your promise. I look to your resurrection life. I look to the new creation of which I'm a part. I look to your spirit who you've promised is like a river of living water flowing from within me. What did Jesus do? You know, rehearse that. Expect Him to fulfill this in your life. It's interesting for the uh, Christians in Hebrew, uh, the writer of Hebrews is writing to Christians that themselves have grown despondent and they've, they're, 
they're apostatizing or being tempted to apostatize and turn away from Christ because of the oppressive persecution and the, the, the failure to continue to live out the love of Christ. And he says, not just keep obeying, but he says in Hebrews 3.6, hold fast your confidence and your hope. I love that. Hold fast your confidence in His grace and your hope. And in the context, when He says, Beware if any of you has an evil, unbelieving heart, and that you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, He, in that context, says, We've got to hold our confidence firm to the end. In other words, the deceitfulness of sin hardens your heart through despair and frustration so that you don't trust Him. You don't trust His work. You don't trust His forgiveness. You're hardened to the glory of the cross and the glory of what He's accomplished so that this gives you the grace to dare to battle, the courage and the energy to give yourself to the warfare. But we get frustrated and we say, well, I'm just not going to let it bother me anymore. What's the use? This is just the way I am. It's the hardness and deceitfulness of sin, you see. Instead of trusting in what God is going to do, we lose hope. And hope can only be sustained even then by the power of the Holy Spirit. As he says later in Romans 15, May the God of all hope, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Romans 15, 13. Isn't that encouraging? That even that hope comes through the resurrection life of Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit. The power of the Spirit so that you would abound in hope. And so I urge you, In the midst of the struggle, don't think that the struggle means that something's wrong. Something's right if you're struggling. Something's good. It's a fight. We take stand. We we wrestle. We labor. We run. We Paul says, I beat myself till I'm black and blue. it's, It's a life of careful discipline, even though it's rooted in the work of Christ. And so we must be declaring to him... Uh, and confessing openly, maybe out loud, regularly. Lord, you are working in my life. You have brought me from death to life. It will increasingly manifest itself in my life. You will conform me more and more to your image. You are exalted above every power. And you promised you would cause me to walk in your word. Constant interplay of the fresh realization of your helplessness, And yet, your trust in Him and expectation of what He will do. There there is so much the Christian life. Isn't it interesting that you get one verse like John 15 that says, Apart from me you can do nothing. Nothing. And then Paul in Philippians 4.13 saying, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. It's amazing. You can do nothing apart from me. Everything as I give you grace. And I would leave you with the prayer that we'll continue next week, but I'll leave you with the prayer that Jesus urges us upon us in Matthew chapter 4, especially because this prayer is in the present tense, and he means to keep doing it.
he says there, oh, no wonder that was Luke. Where is it? (laughs) Ask, and it's present. Keep asking, and it will be given to you. Keep seeking, and you will find. Keep knocking, and it will be opened to you. And now, to underscore that thrice said promise, he gives it three more times. So three is the perfect number. So three, and then three more. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. And of course, he gives that great analogy. So your child asks for eggs in the morning, and you put stones in front of them, or they ask for a fish at night, you give them a snake, or... Is this what you do with your own children? Oh, you? You know how to give good gifts to your children, but you think he's not going to give good things to you? And the version in Luke has that he will not give his Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, these things of obedience, of transformation, of putting sin to death and taking on more and more the character of Christ, if those aren't good things, what are good things? You think he won't do that for you as you continue to pray? And for many of us, the struggle is just for that purpose, to develop this glorious, happy, helpless, expecting prayer that God will pour out his grace in my life. You and I are like caged hawks, but now we've already taken wings. Already. I love that moment when you put a fish back in the water after you've caught it and just, you know, <laughs> zips out. You, you think, I'm going to see him swim, but you don't see him long because he's just gone, you know. You've been put back in the water. You've been put back into the wild. Restored to fellowship with the living God and his life is yours now. Take wing. Take wing. Let us pray. Lord, how glorious it is that we've been brought from death to life, that we've been transferred from the old creation to the new creation. That resurrection has already begun and taken root in our lives. Thank you that it will increasingly bear fruit. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are indeed our Lord and that sin will not be our Lord. May we live out this new life. And Lord, as we continue in this, may we not shy away. May we not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. May we not lose energy and fervor and zeal. May we not be turned away from discipline and careful living. But Lord, may we, in these very acts of of uh, choice in our lives and these very uh, new actions in our life manifest this resurrection life, Lord. Bless us, Lord, that we will hurl ourselves that indeed, as we have sung, in His strength we will dare to battle all the raging hosts of sin and by Him alone conquer the foes without and foes within. For his name's sake we pray. Amen. The pleasing scene is clouded or with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. 
Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain, break radiant through the shades of night, and chase my fears away. Won't you chase my fears away?